When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and just before we begin our new episode, I just wanted to mention that on Saturday, December 3rd to December 4th, we're having yet another live stream fundraiser to raise money for the Children's Miracle Network through Extra Life. And we're looking to raise funds for the Boston Children's Hospital and the Alberta Children's Hospital. So if you'd like to and could take the opportunity to donate, please donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations and you'll see the place where you can donate there and more information on our live stream and you'll be able to follow it all along at twitch.tv forward slash distractionsmedia can't wait for you to see it take care to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 22, Life in Roman Britain. After the defeat of Albinius, the province of Britain was split into Britain Superior, making up Wales and Southern England, and Britain Inferior, a province covering the north of England to Hadrian's Wall. Britain Inferior was where the military focus was held, and it was where Rome effectively set up a way to protect the richer and more productive south from invasions by the Picts. The Servian dynasty, which would create the Servian dynasty, which arose at the end of the second century and then fell by the mid third century, effectively created a downward spiral of graft, greed, and paranoia. Unfortunately for the rest of Roman Britain, this would last for a lot longer than the Servians ever did. The Servians early on decided that money would help keep the military on board. Uh, Septimius, the head of the dynasty, actually gave wage increases to the military as one way to keep them on the right side of him. The idea being is that if you pay your soldiers more and give them raises, it then allows you to have their loyalty. You basically buy them off. And that was actually something he tried to teach his children, which becomes a bit problematic as we go down the road. In fact, it becomes a bit problematic for him eventually. This, of course, raises the prospect of soldiers who, instead of having loyalty to the empire, have a loyalty to the emperor and more to the point, to an emperor that's going to pay them the right price. And Septimius is confusing in this regard because, I mean, one of the reasons why he comes to power is because the Roman military is trying to pay off various people and the Praetorian Guard actually try and hire an emperor. And so when he comes in, one of the first things he does is eliminate the Praetorian Guard who are doing this. And yet here he is turning around and doing the exact same thing. Now, this may in part be down to the fact that as an emperor, he was a former general and former military men 
They had a tendency to be much more loyal to their fellow soldiers than they were to the empire itself. This idea comes back to haunt them. Septimius and his son Caracalla were actually in Britain uh, attempting to take over parts of Scotland again at the beginning of the 3rd century. Severus even went so far as to man the Antonine Wall once again. His advances were short-lived, however, and his son appears to have been less excited about dealing with the Picts. In Britain, during the time of Caracalla, if your loyalty to the emperor was in question, your days were numbered. Caracalla actually notoriously executed a number of attendants of Septimius's and there is some suspicion from the archaeological evidence that we may have found these particular servants uh, because there's a number of people in York who are buried uh, with their heads cut off and they happen to come from that time period. Concern for your welfare in the upper reaches of society led to burials of wealth to protect either it or you from the government or other possible raiding groups. Sometimes these hordes are still found in the United Kingdom and while a boon to archaeologists and historians, they are a likely reminder that their owners probably met a sticky end. Because if you think about it, why would they forget that they buried their money and why would they forget where it is? If you're completely incapable of remembering those kind of things, maybe you shouldn't have the money in the first place would be one of the arguments. So in all likelihood, what we're seeing here is people trying to protect their wealth from taxes, ending up getting arrested or possibly killed by either the government or by raiders and thus that money goes unfound until a metal detectorist finds it a few thousand years later. And this instability also meant that throughout the third century many forts were either established or rejuvenated in the communities that were largely Romanized. When people who have been under Roman domination for nearly 200 years suddenly are in need of protection or need watching, it shows that there is a problem that is systematic in nature. In fact, what we will see in Wales, for example, this is about the time last week we talked a little bit about the uh, fort in uh, Carnarvon and how it ended up becoming rebuilt. And this is another one of those circumstances where the fort is uh, elevated from being just a simple uh, picketed wooden fort to becoming much more well-defended, having a stone wall instead of a wood wall and making it a much more permanent fixture in the landscape. This comes about in part because of raiding that's going on from outside sources, but it also in all likelihood comes from some concern about revolts that were taking place not in an infrequent basis out of places like Roman Britain. Uh, the other major development is a series of coastal forts that were developed in the east of Britain and the west of Gaul. These would eventually become known in a series as the Saxon shore forts, but also may have been, been meant to have been helped not only against raiders and pirates, but possibly other Romans looking to take back control of the English Channel. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth on some of the people that built them, and one of the things you will learn fairly quickly is that these forts to come about in part because there's concerns about the eventual usurper being taken on by a Roman military force. And so this was designed to kind of defeat some of that. But not only that, it also becomes a place where they are trying to protect the local countryside from raiding and invasions from various Germanic tribes, not only the Saxons who 
at the time were carrying on quite a number of these, or at least enough of them, that they had to actually develop forts to protect the uh, countryside. Unfortunately, during this period, our sources are getting weaker. We lose um, Cassius Dio, who had been one of our main sources for a very long time, after losing Tacitus and then Suetonius in the last century. Unfortunately, the replacements are either not as thorough or just not existent. The, there will be people that will come a century later that will start to take up writing again, but we lose a lot when those other historians go out of there. And as, as much as Dio is problematic and Suetonius is obsessed with trying to be salacious and Tacitus has his own agenda built around his, his senatorial history, they at least are more or less trustworthy sources. The later sources are a little bit iffier, and unfortunately that was known for a very long time. Even going into the 6th century, authors such as Gildas, uh, the monk from Wales who will write a fairly strong treaty against his own people, uh, also laments that he cannot find many of the literary sources from Britain because, as he says, such as they were are not now available, having been either burnt by enemies or removed from our, by our countrymen when they went into exile. So in other words, his argument is either they were destroyed or they were taken away by other people moving out of Britain. The reality of it is, because of the chaos of the 3rd century, there may not have been written sources that were writing in depth about British history. 3rd century is probably one of those points where as things break down, the more they break down, the less likely it is you're going to have somebody who has the time and can make the effort to actually do that. It's just not possible to, to when you have so many other things to worry about, to suddenly go, oh yeah, I guess I should write this all down. Sometimes we think about that today, but if you think about it, if you're worried about where your next meal's coming from, where your money's going to come from, where your trade is going to happen, or how to protect yourself from others who may seek to take all that away from you, your willingness and interest in writing and contributing to the literary sources is probably a lot more negligible. So in this time period, we do lose a lot, and we lose a lot of contact with people who at one time were giving us a lot of information. That doesn't mean that there wasn't sources at the time. It doesn't mean also that there could have been a lot more than what we have. We know for a fact that in Roman history, there was a number of things written that we just lost, and because we lost them, we probably lost a valuable resource in understanding what was going on at the time. So... While in some respects I think Gildas is right, I also think there's some reality here that the situation and circumstances led to less writing. Um, being poor in the Roman state meant you were likely going to struggle because unlike in times previous when everyone had likely some part to play in maintaining a tribe or your local tribal leader was just as likely to be related to you, you had a bond with them which is not the same under a major state like Rome. In Rome, the administration is likely foreign, likely aloof. They don't care about you. They don't care about much else other than getting the taxes they're owed and profiting themselves on that and likely looking to head back to a different location instead of being out in the so-called sticks of imperial Rome. 
So in all likelihood, these people didn't have a lot of interpersonal relationships with the people that they served over. That doesn't mean they couldn't, but the reality of it is if we look at the history of Roman tax collection, there was quite a number of people that talked about tax collectors as being some of the worst people. Uh, under Rome, if those were generally run by, as I said, the administrative class, and these men collected taxes, decided on the infrastructure, collected tariffs and tolls, and they pretty much controlled the money that ran the government. And the expectation was is that while you raised money for your emperor, you also quite often raised money for yourself. And that, of course, made the taxes even a greater burden because likely they want to profit more from them. So they'll raise taxes either on their own or if the government decides to raise taxes, they'll hike it a little bit more so they get a little bit better, you know, kickback. And often hand in hand with these tax collectors were something called money lenders who then offered ways to help those who couldn't meet their imperial obligations, either through bad crop yields, lost property, or financial hardship. These people, more or less, gave you... They'd be considered loan sharks today if we were talking about them. They would even go so far as to pay a small amount for your grain and then sell it back to you at a, at a cost and in that way profit on both sides of that exchange. And in the, the reality of it was, for most people, they didn't have an option. They had to use these people. And so quite often uh, they became targets of hate and were fairly much considered rather loathsome leeches on society, even in the Roman times. Mixed in with this is how the con currency would be debased by the emperors of the third century uh, as they had to keep increasing the costs of their so-called loyal military. Uh, the imperial currency, which was largely made with gold and silver in previous years, or at least a goodly portion of gold and silver, had a reduced precious metal count in order to make the cost of production cheaper so they could produce more. But of course, as we know from modern circumstances, whenever you debase coinage or, or print a lot, you end up in a situation where that overall cost or value goes down. And in a circumstance where, say, you're trading with a government that doesn't necessarily have Roman denarii or an exchange rate that's fair, all they're concerned about is the precious metal content. A trader in the Saharan desert is not going to give two figs about the emperor on the back of the coin only wants to know is, is this coin worth as much as, you know, his Persian money? And in all likelihood, it isn't. And at this point in time, this became a major problem for the Romans. And one of the reasons why when you have usurpers coming up, they in, at times can produce better coinage because they're producing less of it and they're closer to the mines that produce these the precious metals that help fund these coins. And so this also would create massive inflation because if you're buying something in that circumstance, all of a sudden your coin is worth less. And so you have to spend more coins in order to be able to pay for the item. Of course, your pay doesn't jump up at the same time that this debasement is going on, certainly not as much as you would imagine it should. Uh, one only has to look at the recent fall of the British pound or of the American dollar to see how that can affect the society as a whole. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The reality of it is your ability to make trade and to profit from that trade is lessened. Thus your wages you're paying out or the food and the other things that you're giving your workers drops as well because of course you can't afford to spend as much on it because you're not making as much effectively with the inflation and so it creates a mass migration of people back into the barter system and back into rural areas we actually see a depopulation of city centers and market towns in this period in roman britain which shows that likely the way that people used to do things all of a sudden started to get hurt. For now, almost 200 years, Britain has been a society that has developed on the basis of the Roman way of doing things. Well, this is a fundamental Roman way of doing something that's that's becoming much less important to them in their survival. 
So thus we return to the barter systems, we return to agriculture as a primary mover of economies. And because of this, there's actually less coins in Roman Britain from this period than from any other period in the Roman Britain settlement because there just isn't the coinage because nobody's taking it. Or if they're taking it, you have to pay so much more for what you were paying before. So the debasement of the coinage may have worked out for the governors and for the emperors, but in the end, for the population as a whole and for society as a whole, it was a destabilizing effect. And in the end, that will come back to haunt your emperor because sooner or later, somebody's going to put two and two together, and typically that doesn't end well for your emperor. Some archaeological finds point to a widespread development of literacy. The idea of writing things down became important, obviously, Unlike in previous times in the Iron Age where handwriting and literature was not produced, or at least none that we've ever found, in Roman Britain, the ability to write and the ability to read was incredibly important, and it could be money-making. And one of the ways that people made money was through being a scribe. And in Britain, that meant being able to write something down for someone. And one of the things that came, became very popular was either writing charms or curses. Now, these charms or curses are written on, in some cases, tablets. Uh, in the case of the evidence that we found in Bath, for example, archaeologists have been able to show that they used lead tablets that were written on by a scribe, which would then indicate kind of what the person who was dictating to them wanted out of this. Now, sometimes it was obviously they wanted a blessing from the gods for something. Sometimes they wanted some good luck to come their way because of things they were doing at the time. But conversely, they were also appeals to gods to help them get back stolen items, which again, in an era of uncertainty and unsteadiness, there would be a lot more of that going on in the third century. As well, there was curses that would go along with that. And one of the examples of one of the, um, one of the uh, charms was in a, a item, a tablet, where it was written on it talking about stolen linen and the fact that the person uh, would share the profits, in quotes, with Mercury and Sylvanus if they would help them get these items back and effectively looking for some divine intervention. They may have even been more metaphorical about giving rather than actually sharing the wealth, but that's only a supposition by sarcastic or realistic, some might say. Uh, academics who have looked at this and said, you know, realistically, how are they giving money back? I guess they could give it to the temple. But the reality of it is, some ways, it's more like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Another way to get your own back on your enemy was through curses. And these cursed charms were, again, as we said, paid to a scribe. Then, much like the charm, what you have to do as an individual is you, after this has been written on the, on the tablet, you then take that tablet and throw it into a sacred spring. In Bath, that was one of the reasons why they did that. Bath was a long-time sacred site, even going back into the Bronze Age. And so it remained an important place even into the Roman period. We've talked a little bit about the fact that Roman Britons had a tendency to continue to revere and look to ancient holy sites as being important. 
burial mounds and walk paths and roads had coins buried in them. Even into the late Roman era, that was still going on. The, for whatever reason, it was felt to be a good omen or a good luck piece to, to you know, show respect to the ancestors or to the gods in that way. And as well, we talked previously about the whole cot cottage industry in the Iron Age of being able to bury various items into water sources. You know, you toss a broken sword or a, a little mold of something into the water to symbolize your devotion in some way or other. And this seems to have continued into the Roman period, the idea that a water source is important. And again, we did talk about the whole concept that even modern day, we still continue this process with the old throwing the coin in the fountain for luck or for some wish. So this continues in this era, and this is one of the evidences of that, uh, the idea that you would then throw your curse or your charm into the water, and you would then hope that that would be taken to the gods, and the gods would then bless you with whatever you're asking of them. Uh, this is common in the Roman period, not just in Roman Britain, but the reality of it is, I think, if we look at the fact that they're using water sources, it's very interesting to see that that kind of carries on. It's something very old that's continued on in this period, and, and it's always interesting to kind of wonder how much of this is a Roman thing and how much of this is a British thing. And is this something that was done and just carried forward, but given a slightly different label to kind of remind people of how important certain things are to them? Uh, the other interesting thing that we find written down and that there's evidence of is tablets which were actually made of wood that, that at times have gotten buried in strange locations where there isn't the oxygen to decay the wood. Um, in both evidences that we have, there was bogs involved, and bogs are known for not having a lot of oxygen in them. And so it's a lot easier for these things when they get covered with dirt and that kind of stuff to actually maintain the item in question. And the one fine example that we have recently is in London, they found wooden tablets with writing on it talking about various things that went on, even in the period before Boudicca, where there was talk of exchanging of goods and of you know tracking various things down. But that's still early days as far as our recording goes, so we don't know everything in it yet. There hasn't been a published documentation of everything quite yet. It'll be interesting to see what the final result of that is and how it kind of bridges the gap for us in our understanding of what was going on in that period in that city. Uh, but the one that was found in the 80s, which I think makes a huge step in understanding some of what was going on, is the so-called Venlandia tablets, which were found, as I said, in the mid and late 80s. Uh, they were found in a former waterlogged fort uh, which is near Hadrian's Wall. Uh, it was a fort that was actually built in the late uh, first century and continued to be in use well into the third. Uh, it was originally a wooden fort that was again turned into a stone fort, much as many things were in the third century. Uh, these tablets have an amazing amount of interesting information a lot of it, however, is military in origin. They weren't like talking about their overall strategy or tactics. It was more about how do we 
get information? How do we get supplies? Complaints about various things to do with different troops and different organizations. And in some cases, a complaint about the weather, surprise, surprise, and about the roads and their conditions. Uh, they're mostly from around 90 to 105 AD. Uh, this is during the time when the ninth cohort of Batvarians, uh, a group of soldiers from Germanic Dutch lands, and the first cohort of Tungrians, uh, who are Belgic Gauls, were stationed in that area. The Tungrians are an interesting choice as they may have shared, as I've said before, uh, common root languages with the Britons. So there may have been put there in part to kind of build relationships of trust and to develop a better local contact while not necessarily being British themselves. Um, the letters are varied in nature, as I said, you know, from military orders to invitations to parties um, and complaining about the road systems. One of the more unique ones is written to Sulpia, Sulpicia Lepidina, who was the wife of the fort commander, and it was actually a request from her sister. And just to kind of give you an idea of kind of the conversation, I'll, I'll read you the letter. It's not very long. Claudia Severia, greetings to her Lepidina. On the third day before the Ides of September, sister, for the day of my birthday celebration, I give you a warm invitation to make sure that you come to us, to make the day more enjoyable for me by your arrival, if you are present. Give, gre give greetings to your Cerealius, my alias, and my little son send you their greetings. I shall expect you, sister. Farewell, sister, my dearest soul, as I hope to prosper and hail. While there are fragments of other letters, commands, requests, and general commentary, there is little actual strategy or larger goals of the Romans military here. Mostly they appear to be what you could imagine, a day-to-day -day grinding out of the life of a military soldier monitoring the frontier. Uh, as Guy de la Bordière puts it, the Vinlandia tablets paint a picture of a world of intermittent skirmish warfare in which Britons were irritants and not strategic threats. So we have an outpost of Roman imperial presence, but it is an outpost in all of those shapes and forms, which are not exciting, and it was rather dreary and rather day-to-day. -day. And yet we have this fantastic letter from the to the commander's wife inviting her to her sister's place for a birthday celebration, and you get inside of that just a little peek at the life of at least one woman in the Roman Britain that isn't a Briton. And I think it's a fascinating thing to see that. Um, the military in the early 2nd century had gone from aggressive conquerors to policemen and protectors of the Romano-British against the free British of the North. But Rome itself was going through a transformation in this period which likely left few able to finance the tax demands, restless troops and officials fearing for their lives and at the whims of the next strongman who takes over as leader, and the splintering roles of the empire, with Augustus's and Caesar's making up different roles in the leadership and actually making things eventually even more difficult. In this chaos would enter men who would offer a different vision of empire and a different idea about what makes a leader. They would try and break the Roman Empire, 
and create systematic problems which would continue to show cracks right up until the reign of a guy named Constantinus, or better known to us as Constantine. These usurpers and pretenders would become the key point and counterpoint to the Roman lack of stability in the third century, and they will have an enormous effect on the overall stability of Rome going on into many centuries later and the eventual downfall of the Roman Empire. And next week, we're going to talk about a couple of them. For now, let me just encourage you once again to consider donating to our raffle. Uh, as announced previously a few weeks ago, the book in question that we're offering is The History of Wales by John Davis. Uh, it's a penguin book that's uh, quite a large paperback book. It uh, has been updated relatively recently, so there's some changes that were made from the original writing, which was a little bit of an older book. Um, as well, we're offering an Amazon gift card for $25 in case that doesn't meet something you have interest in. And just in case we reach our final goal, which is $1,000 we're hoping to reach by December 2nd for our fundraiser, if we reach that goal on December 3rd when we draw for the raffle, we will actually give the winner both items. So please consider donating. It only costs $5 American to actually enter. Uh, you, Once you've entered, you can enter as many times as you want. Um, and certainly I would encourage you to consider it because it is helping to fund the Children's Miracle Hospitals, which help children in need and children and their parents in these hospitals and gives a way for us to reach and give back. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to know more about us and what we do, go to distractionsmedia.com. If you would like to comment on this podcast or an episode of this podcast, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can contact me on Twitter at welshhistorypod, or on Facebook on facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.